when we are not engaged, when our senses, which is eyes, ears, hands are not engaged, listening to music, you may think you're doing nothing, but your brain is processing the sound waves. So listening to music, no matter how relaxing it is, you are busy. Your brain is busy. You disengage from all of that. You can stare out a blank wall or the window if you want to. Let your mind do its thing. So that- Welcome to You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. You are ambitious in life and in your career, but something is missing. You want to bring more of your passion to what you do, because let's be honest, you pour a ton into your work and it needs to mean more. I'm your host, Laura Eigel. I'm a mom, wife, PhD, coach, advocate, introvert, and indoor rowing fanatic. I'm passionate about living a life that's in line with my values. We'll give you the actionable tips and tools you need to lead with your values, make a difference, and have career success. The world needs more diversity and authenticity in the top jobs at organizations. Your leadership belongs there. You belong in the C-suite. Hi there, friends. My first book, Values First, How Knowing Your Core Beliefs Can Get You the Life and Career You Want, is now out in the world. Thank you so much for your support of the book. With your help, we are a number one Amazon bestseller in the business ethics category and a number one new release for time management in business and business etiquette. I have poured my heart into this book with personal stories and stories for my coaching clients using the values first framework. Between the constant pressure of job performance and demands on your time, it's easy to lose sight of your values, letting them shift out of alignment. Those simple misalignments are keeping you from feeling joyful and fulfilled. Learn how to recenter your life and career around what truly matters to you. Order Values First now at your favorite independent bookstore or at Barnes and Noble or Amazon. I wanna make sure that you are the first to know about every book activity that we have in store, including virtual and in-person events. Stay up to date by joining our list at thecatchgroup.com slash values first. That's thecatchgroup.com slash values first. Welcome to the You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. I'm excited to introduce you to our guest, Jenny Upal. Today, we are talking about a topic that may seem controversial, the idea of strategic inaction. Jenny is no stranger to driving innovative thinking. She has honed her 20 plus years of experience in driving transformational growth by challenging existing norms at Fortune 500 companies like Kohl's, Macy's, and IBM. As a business and tech growth strategist, board advisor, and thought leader, she continues to pave innovative paths to progress and success and most recently served in the role of Vice President of Strategy at a $12 billion North American retailer, Bed Bath & Beyond. Originally from Mumbai, Jenny is a graduate of Florida International University and Harvard Business School. In 2016, she took a sabbatical and worked with artists in Morocco to help them monetize their work. Jenny has been a practitioner of Vedic and Buddhist meditation and breathwork since 2008. In our conversation, We talked about the history of the hustle culture and why it doesn't work now, the impacts of the pandemic on work, 
and the idea of strategic inaction, especially in times of crisis, as the best way to get results. I know I always talk about the importance of taking action, no matter how big or small. So this topic is very interesting to me. What if the best action is taking no action? Let's get started. Well, I want to welcome you to the You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Laura. It's good to be here. Yeah, I am just really excited that we were connected and I've been really excited to have you on. I think the topic that we are going to talk about today is interesting because it's it might seem a bit controversial. It definitely goes against a lot of the things that we have been told And that's why I think it's even more important (laughs) because I think this is, um, this is the content that we need right now, especially with the great resignation. But before we get into some of the content, can you tell our audience a little bit more about yourself? Of course. So I originally I'm from India and I moved to the US for grad school. I've had now a 20 plus year corporate experience. I was Just before the pandemic, until then, I was vice president of a $12 billion North American retailer. So my career has crossed between telecom, e-commerce, and retail. Um, The book came into my life. I say it came into my life because I never meant to write the book. Uh, But like many others during the pandemic, I found myself reflecting on just what life have I lived versus what life do I want to live? And I'm very grateful I had the opportunity. My book, uh, In Action, Rethinking the Path to Results, came out in December 21. Uh, So I've been talking about the book and it just turns out, like you said, the timing worked out rather unexpectedly for me because the book has been received, I think, much better than had I written it 10 years ago when the narrative was all about the hustle culture at go, go, go. And now people are more receptive to listening to the idea that taking short breaks, reflecting is good for you, not just for the sake of it, but to actually get you to your results. Uh, So I'm very happy to be here and talking more about it with you. I'm so excited to talk to you more about the concepts in your book and not just a book, but an award-winning book. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm pretty excited as a first-time author. Of course, I did not expect to win awards, but uh, as of today, it has won three awards. So I'm really happy about that too. Yeah, it's exciting. It's exciting. So let's dive in. But before we go forward, let's kind of talk about the consequences maybe of this hustle culture. And we talk about hustle culture. It's like, I feel like it's honoring like that grind, the work, doing all the things, right? And there's kind of some heroics about that. And if you're not doing that, then you're doing it wrong, kind of. And it and it feels like that's that's been it for a while, right? It has. It has. I think hustle culture came into mainstream lingo 10, 15 years ago when social media and gig economy were coming about and what the young at that time millennials woke up to the fact that you know corporate uh, nine to five career path is kind of over it's it does it's not very fulfilling nobody's really happy but if I do these gig kind of work streams if I have four or five things I hustle a bit maybe I work hard in my youth but I'll get rich you know, by the end of my 30s, and I'll be happy forever. That was the promise of the hustle culture. And a lot of social media celebrities glamorized it, they glorified it, people showed off their 80 hour lifestyles. 
and some bling that they got <laughs> along with that. Maybe did, some people did make money, the ones that were most vocal about it. But 10, 15 years later, most of us are waking up to the fact that the promise of hustle culture did not pan out. Most people are still working. If anything, they have been burnt out and exhausted. And the pandemic served as a tipping point. It kind of forced everybody to realize you've been working 10, 15 hours. You're not where you thought you would be, but you are burnt out. You're exhausted. So you're right. Hustle culture has been around, unfortunately, too long. I do believe it's time for it to, to be put to bed, that lifestyle. I, I, I have nothing against working hard for a project. You're launching a product. Maybe you do have to work hard. But this lifestyle of constantly going on 80-hour a week, year after year, that's what I think the problem is. And it's interesting that that idea of like having a side hustle and a this and a that, or even I think sometimes industries or companies can have a hustle culture too, where they're working 80, hundred hour weeks, like in DC firms and things like that. And people put in, you know, they put in their time as that kind of consultant sometimes, like you said, kind of early in their youth to then you know, um, hopefully reap the benefits, usually monetary, right? Right. Um, but it's not sustainable. The interesting thing is, so I lived, I'm a technologist and I lived in the Bay Area for three years. And even outside of that, I've always worked with the Valley, Silicon Valley culture and the narrative I would hear from the young out there living that lifestyle of long hours was not just because they wanted to make money, but because they told themselves they are solving world hunger. You know, there was some some nobility that they attach to the work they are doing and they truly believe it. So they get into this habit. And of course the company, the entrepreneur works long hours. So everybody who worships the entrepreneur also works long hours. Consequently, they give up on rest and sleep. In my book, I reference research that people between the age of 20 and 39 have been the large fastest growing segment for prescriptive stimulants, such as Adderall. And that's been going on for quite a while. So people have this lifestyle of not getting enough rest, working long hours, and it goes on for 10, 15 years until they burn out, until they have a breakdown. And I have, I reference stories of a couple of people who had that breakdown. And of course, then they, fortunately, in their case, they came back from it. So how do we move from this, you know, cultural bias in these, in the whole hustle culture within some of our companies to something else? How do, how do we make that transition? Pandemic has absolutely served as that point of reflection, kind of the great resignation. I've definitely seen that with the clients that I work with, kind of just realizing, hey, am I, I'm not really aligned to this anymore. Um, yeah. But how do you actually make that shift? That's a good question. I've reflected on that for my own sake and that mm -hmm. of others who are interested in this book. One thing to acknowledge is the fact is that the nine to five work culture is indeed dead. I mean, we, we should just let that go. The idea that I can only work X number of hours and then the rest of the time is mine in most industries is, is actually gone. Uh, of course, we kind of went with the flow and started working all the time, you know, 24 by seven, we are on. That's the problem. So I'm not, I'm not looking for the day when we go back to how things were in the 1960s or 70s, whenever that was. What I am recommending in this book is accept the fact that the lifestyle we all signed up for, we can blame the company, the corporation, the society, but the fact is we participated in the name of just do it or lean in or other slogans that we were raised on. We signed up for that. 
You and I are the only people who can take ownership of our life back. I don't want to wait for the society to change. In many ways, if I change my habits and others around me will have no choice to change. So what I've started talking about lately in my interviews is this idea of intermittent breaks. Instead of waiting for the weekend or the evening after a long day of back-to-back -back meetings to recover, just allow yourself intermittent breaks, short breaks throughout the day. Many of us probably don't have the luxury of shutting off our phone at 6 p.m. and not looking at it until 8 a.m. the next morning. At the same time, like, like flip the whole, take advantage of that, that life we are living and start introducing 10-minute breaks in the middle of your day. Most people say they don't have time, they're busy. And I'm saying you can find 10 minutes. Usually what happens when we find 10 minutes is we scroll social media. We chat with someone. We catch up on news. You don't need that stimulation. Nothing changed in the stock market in the last two hours. I promise you, if it's going down, it's going to keep going down. At some point, it'll go back up. So maybe start small. Take small breaks throughout the day. Diffuse the tension that builds up when we work stressful days. And eventually, that will become a habit. And I trust that you will know when you get the benefit of the break, you'll see that you're behaving and performing well, and you'll want more of that. I love that. And then to your point earlier, you're then modeling it, and then others will see that and hopefully then do the same for themselves. Exactly. I want to share with you the story of a Dutch entrepreneur who accidentally discovered this idea of taking a mind-wandering walk before a major client pitch. This was years ago, 2012. He was, you know, he had to meet with the client pitching for his business and he was new in the city. He didn't know what else to do. So he went for a walk and he didn't rehearse the pitch. Normally that's what you do, right? You're nervous. Let me practice. Let me check up on this last data point. Anyway, of course, the pitch went very well. He got the business. More importantly, he noticed a change in his own behavior that he was very relaxed, he was more confident, and he said, I'm going to do this. Before every major client pitch, I'm going to take an hour and do nothing. Of course, his co-owner of the consultancy at that time demanded, like, what do you mean? Who are you billing this hour to? So which is like, yeah, good question. <laughs> and this uh, Dutch entrepreneur said, you know, th this is on my time. I need this to be better than ever before at my job. 10 years forward now, I interviewed him last year, so nine years later, of course, this consultancy has grown by leaps and bounds. They have gone into fixed fee kind of a billing model because they're now working on outcomes. They are confident enough to promise outcomes and not an hourly rate. Most importantly, Laura, he shared with me that I never mandated my team to do what I'm doing, but they all look at my behavior and they're all doing this now. So that is what I, that's a great example of leading by example. Interestingly, after hearing his story, I started to follow that before all of my interviews. I can't always spare an hour. I think that's still true. I'm discovering even 10 minutes of checking out of whatever I'm doing before a major meeting, a conversation like this, decluttering my mind, staring into empty space. I don't know. It does something. It's, it's powerful. It's magical. And it works. So yeah, you can't mandate, you can make other people's other people behave differently, but you can behave differently. So tell me more about mind wandering and what does that literally look like? Is it walking outside and not having any like stimuli, like no headphones, no phone, no, like what, what are you literally doing? If somebody's right. doing this, like that's such a great question. Foreign, <laughs> foreign concept to some. 
Yeah, that is a that's a like a trick question or something like what are you doing when you're doing nothing? So uh, in my book, I talk about certain behaviors which have traditionally been stigmatized, such as mind wandering, which is associated with uh, a distracted mind, and it's in its extreme form. It is called ADHD. So people always think of mind wandering as a bad thing. I talk about laziness and procrastination, about how these are, if if leveraged correctly, these are actually tools to unleash creativity and creative ideas in your mind. So think of, people often tell me, I get my best ideas in the shower or Mm -hmm. when I'm driving, where your whole system is not as engaged. I define mind wandering. I actually came across neuroscience research, which I reference in the book. What they really found out is when when we are not engaged, when our senses, which is eyes, ears, hands are not engaged, listening to music, you may think you're doing nothing, but your brain is processing the sound waves. So listening to music, no matter how relaxing it is, you are busy. Your brain is busy. You disengage from all of that. You can stare out a blank wall or the window if you want to let your mind do its thing. So there are parts of the brain that light up. They're called the default mode network. And these parts of the brain, their function is to collect, look into data and information you've been processing and connect the dots in a way that had you been concentrating and focusing, you would not come up with the same solution. That's just not how the brain works. So mind wandering or letting the default mode network light up makes room for these aha, insight ideas, ideas that came out of nowhere. Like you wouldn't even, you would not have thought of it had you been focusing on it. So it is harnessing that aspect of your brain that was designed to give you creative ideas. It's just that we never go to that place because we're always busy. When we go for a walk, most people plug earphones into their ears and they're listening to music or they go with a friend and they talk, you're engaging. So simplest case of mind wandering is sit and stare at a blank wall. It will feel awkward. I started doing it. It was super awkward. (laughs) So in the beginning, maybe do it in a private place where you're not going to be embarrassed about sitting there staring at nothing. (laughs) But over time now, when I go to the coffee shop, I, I don't care. Like I'm tuning out and that's okay. So give it a try and, and tell me how it goes for you. Yeah, I will. I remember the first time I was just taking a walk and it was by force. I had, I always bring my phone and my earbuds or whatever on a walk. Um, sometimes I'm with the dog, which is another distraction, or sometimes I'm just by myself and I take walks daily um, just as a break, right? To um, to have some, sometimes some thinking time just to get outside, move my body. And um, my phone died. <laughs> so yeah. I did it. So I was like, oh, am I going to be able to have a walk without music or a podcast? Can you survive? <laughs> Am I going to be able to do this? Like it was surprising how, um, how much I really thought it was going to impact the enjoyment of my walk. And of course it was more enjoyable, right? right? Because I didn't have that. But at first it's almost like this little panic. Oh, do I, how do I do this? And it was really great being with Um, being with my thoughts and looking at a bird or, you know, whatever it is, 
but it was um, it was hard the first little bit of it. it it was hard for me I tell you I found my hand automatically reaching out to the phone <laughs> I was yes. sitting in my home doing this mind wandering thing mm-hmm. and suddenly I'm scrolling I'm like when did this even happen when did I even pick up the phone <laughs> so then I started putting the phone in the next room so I at least I'll it's far away enough but nonetheless it's these are all habits, right? These are mental muscles we've developed just as the dependency on the music is a habit you've developed. This is a new habit, different habit you develop. You start small, which is why I tell people, don't think of right away, you know, I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to wander the world until I figure out the meaning of my life. Do it if it really, if you're so inspired, go for it. I have taken a sabbatical from my career, but you don't have to do anything so dramatic. Introduce small breaks, moments of reflection during the day let that become an integrated part of your life and just just watch see what ideas come up see what thoughts come up during that time and see for yourself whether this works or not so if we're doing that hopefully we're coming up with different ideas or different ways to do things can you also talk about this idea of intentionally setting time for strategic inaction can you talk a little bit more about what strategic inaction is and why we need to do it. Yeah, usually, so the title of my book is In Action, and it's written as a play on words. You can read it as one word or two words. And uh, the subtitle is Rethinking the Path to Results. So normally we associate action with results, right? If you want something, you have to do something about it. What I'm suggesting may sound very contrarian and very difficult to accept that. I'm saying our tendency is to do too much. We have all humans have an action bias, which is a tendency to take action, which is either not needed for that goal or is counterproductive. What I am bringing up in this book is injecting and introducing more reflective pauses. Inaction usually is associated with paralysis out of fear. It's, it's got a negative connotation. Yeah. Strategic in a, yeah. Right. It's, it's like being fearful or, or not rising to the occasion. I'm calling it strategic inaction simply to indicate two things. One is this is the kind of inaction you do. I know that word doesn't fit here, but you do it as a choice. Second, it is a deliberate attempt as it's a, it's a strategy. It is a tool just as action is a tool in your toolkit to get to results. Strategic inaction is a tool. Don't underestimate what can happen when you employ strategic inaction? So then the, the question I get is, so what does that look like? How do I do strategic inaction? My book is really more descriptive in the sense it's to raise awareness first. First, you've got to get the concept. When it comes to techniques, in the book, I have stories of people employing a few seconds of verbal silence in the middle of a conversation, an argument, a negotiation. And there is research That when people are negotiating and they employ verbal silence of just a few seconds, the outcome of the negotiation is both parties seem to get more that the expanded pie mindset is lingo in the world of negotiation, where instead of just dividing the pie, we'll collaborate and grow the pie. So each party gets more. And they found that people who employ more strategic Moments of silence, verbal silence. So that's an example of strategic inaction. 
In the book, I have a story of a CEO who was informed about the death of a child on a machine made by his company. It was a medical imaging company. And instead of firing off from the crisis playbook, he went for a walk. And on the walk, he came up with some ideas. Of course, he did what he had to do. Great story, which is why it's in the book. But that's another example. So strategic inaction can, it's like you'll know when you need to step back. In the book, there are stories of how people employ it. And you can read the book for inspiration, but there is not, I'm not recommending a formula of these are 10 things to be strategically inactive. It's more raising awareness why every now and then stopping, stepping back, reflecting will get you there faster. I love this concept and I'm not surprised that people want to know how to do it because it's more action, right? Right. But the, the right action is the pause. Sometimes the right action is no action. And we are just not habituated. Our habit is to keep doing. We are uncomfortable with the pause. Like you said, you're uncomfortable when there's no music. So the, the book is really about raising awareness that we have become uncomfortable with pauses. And the idea is to become comfortable. Then the actual technique or the tactic, it'll come up on its own. Trust that your system knows when to take a step back if you allow it to. And I like how you mentioned that CEO and that story you just referenced was still able to use it during crisis, right? Yeah, which is a classic moment where everybody expects action and there are crisis crisis playbooks. And the CEO, I've known him for more than 10 years. I asked him, what does the crisis playbook say? Because for a healthcare company, of course, they, they expect some crises. And he said, you know, uh, issue a gag order, call an emergency staff meeting, lawyer up, play defense, right? That's what you do. Uh, And he instead went for a walk. And he very explicitly told me, I want you to go for a walk to become conversant with what is a once in a lifetime situation, the death of a child. He wanted to become familiar with what just happened. And then from, and he said, I knew that I will be bombarded with advice. And I didn't want that advice right away. I wanted to be connected with the situation first. And of course, what he did in that case was he, instead of lawyering up, he actually flew to the scene of the incident. And I'll summarize the story. His actions landed up establishing a lot of trust and partnership with the hospital where it happened, the parent, the single mother. And he he could have said, this is not my problem. He could have sent a lawyer, but he went himself. And he went with a scientist to understand what happened rather than a lawyer. <laughs> Anyway, his company was absorbed of the responsibility of the death. But in the process, imagine the credibility he built in the marketplace and with his customers that I am truly here for you. Healthcare companies are constantly advertising, we are here for you. Here was a CEO who actually lived that, you know, he walked that talk. And interestingly, we were, we were talking about, you know, how do you, um, this is not something you can make others do. I asked him, so things worked out. But still, you going to the hospital was a pretty risky move. You not lawyering up was a risky move. Did you get dinged by your leadership and board? And he said, you know, the general counsel of the company, I got a slap on the wrist. I shouldn't have done that. But the leadership was fully aligned with me because we were aligned on the principles. So in the book, I have a chapter on principles how to act from a place of principle. Usually we take action because we are pressured in the name of being pressured by shareholders, team members, bosses. 
But here was a person who, of course, faced all the typical pressures, but he acted from a place of principles. And that two-hour break gave him time to connect with his principles. It is not that none of us have principles. It is just that we are too busy to connect with them. We act without thinking. And then we, of course, the, the message that sends to the world is that we don't have principles, but we do. It's just that we never connected with them. Yes, I'm resonating with this so much. And the language that I use in my content is values, but values and principles, similar, Similar, yeah, um, very similar. So this idea of taking this intentional pause to ground yourself in principles Mm -hmm. and or values. And uh, really, to me, that story also feels just human and empathetic, right? To lead you to the right the the right decision and the right action that you will eventually take after that pause. Right. And I it's important for me to communicate that the book again isn't about doing the right thing for the sake of it. It is to get results. In this case, the CEO, you know, a whole bunch of stuff happened, things are fine, he comes back. He asked the single mother, would you please share your story with my team? And by now they have of course a relationship of trust. And she shared her story with his team of a thousand people. They were so inspired. These are people who work with machines all day, right? They have a job. They're like, you know, we tend to mindlessly do whatever we are doing. They were so inspired by her story that they initiated a whole bunch of quality improvement programs, even though they were not at fault. And the CEO told me, if I had to mandate quality improvement, I'd be spending a ton of money and it would be my problem to solve. But I, in a way, he did nothing, right? He acted from his principles. He did what was, he took organic actions and he saved a ton of money and he preempted future problems with quality without waiting for something to actually go bad. So this most all the stories in my book are not about, uh, you know, sitting on a moral high ground and doing good things. It's about driving results, because if you don't have results, then unfortunately, in this world, you won't be around very long if you can't right. drive results. So. I am talking about strategic inaction, which is why I call it strategic. It's a strategy to get results. And I know it sounds awkward and difficult to believe, but anyway, I'm convinced because I've spoken to enough people and I've referenced enough research uh, that it is a strategy. You know, at at this time of the recording, we're in Mental Health Awareness Month. And so I want to ask you, you know, how can strategic inaction help with our current mental health crisis? I believe the current mental health crisis has many causes. There are some genuine issues in people's lives in the world. At the end of the day, I think the fact that we, the lives we live are only more complex than ever before and probably will become more complex. And the fact that we are constantly in a go mode and bombarded with all the negative news is a very big contributor to mental health. And what I'm talking about is taking a break, stepping back and disconnecting from all of these stressful stimulants. To me, it is almost necessary now. I I wish I could prescribe people 10 minute breaks every two hours like Mm -hmm. they do in for airline pilots in hospital, you know, people who work in hospitals, they just make you take a break. And, And I wish I could do that for everyone. Every hour you take a five minute break. I don't care. Do nothing. So I I feel if anything now, it has become even more urgent that we give ourselves the break that we need so that we don't drive ourselves to exhaustion and fatigue as we often do. Absolutely. 
The next question I have for you is about this idea. It feels like there's, there's kind of a, adjacent things that could be interesting to this kind of like delegation, this idea of doing things, maybe not yourself, letting other people do them, letting other people empower them to, to, so you don't take the action yourself. What right. are, what are your thoughts about how to utilize this concept with delegating to? Right. Uh, so in the chapter on laziness, mm-hmm. I, I talk about delegation as an example or as a, as a, manifestation in the sense laziness sounds negative but very often you have to want to not do everything there are people who want to do everything and that is the fastest way to exhaustion is when you really are convinced that I have to do everything and I want to do everything you've got to choose to be lazy in certain aspects and choose to delegate and those who are who've lived the corporate life which many of your listeners have you you know that the the way to get to higher levels in the corporate landscape are to delegate more and more. And in the beginning, it's very hard. Yes. I remember the first time I made director, I used to love, I, I knew I was in an e-commerce company. I used to love hanging out with the merchants. I knew their whole life story and how they operate. And my job was to build technology. And then I became a director. I had engineering reporting into me. So now I, and I remember my team, my direct reports would come tell me stories about the merchant, whatever happened. And I would feel so bad. I would feel like I'm not, I'm not part of the action anymore. Um, but that's, that's what it takes. The further up in the corporate ladder or any aspect of life you go, the more you have to let go. You have to, you have to let other people do their job and coach them and support them, but step back don't interfere. Yeah. I love this whole idea of you not having to do it all, whether it's what all the, all the actions that you want to take, not doing it all right now to take a step back, but then also in action can look like delegating. And it absolutely it should. I think sometimes we think that I can do it faster myself than teaching someone. And we know the adage, you know, teach them to fish, all those kinds of things. But in the moment, you just need to get it done. Right. So leaders are generally doing it. So I love this idea of you do not have to do everything, nor should you. Right. Yeah. It's not a sustainable model in the sense, if you really want to sure, but you're not going to get very far with that. So again, the book is all about getting results. It's about being successful and the, the bigger and bolder your ambition is, the more you're going to have to embrace thoughtful pauses without it you you won't get very far that that's my observation and learning yeah agree that idea of getting results through others through delegation yeah too, for sure well I have thoroughly enjoyed our time together today can you tell us a little bit more on how the best way to connect with you I love hearing from people. I fully acknowledge some of these ideas are pretty contrarian. So I would love to hear from people, whether you agree or disagree. I'm fairly easy to find. My uh, name is unique, Ginny Opal. So my website, J-I-N-N-Y-U-P-P-A-L.com is a good place to start and contact me. And I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter, Instagram. I'm Ginny Opal everywhere. Uh, and my book is out there. It's it's on Amazon. I also have a limited edition signed copy offer on my internet. Um, so yeah, I would love to hear from people on, on any topic they want to discuss. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here today, sharing your ideas uh, and your experiences and those of your clients as well. And we'll put um, all of those links in the show notes too. And I just thank you so much for your time today. 
I want to thank you so much for listening to the You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. If you are enjoying this content, please remember to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. By leaving a review, you are helping others find this content. We will be featuring five-star reviews on air in upcoming episodes. Editing and support for the podcast is done by S&E Podcast Management. To get more tips and tools to help you live a life guided by your values, go to thecatchgroup.com. Keep your boundaries and take care. Thank you.